Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. I'm not sure who's going to talk first. I guess I will. COVID-20. <laughs> COVID COVID-20. This would be the 20th COVID. Sadly. We're still going. Anyway, we started with, again, being a Tuesday with Jerrica Burge from the University of Minnesota. I think it's Burgey. No, it's Burge. Okay, like barge with an E. Yes, like that. We'll ask her to listen to this and give us feedback. Anyway, she stated that the study she first talked about her very first time with us, this Get Well Loop study, they're now doing an antibody test um, on the 4,000 participants, and they're really getting a deep dive into all the risk factors and all of the different symptoms and yada, yada, yada. So just more things to help, you know, lay out everything there is COVID. I hope she comes on and tells us what happened. I'm sure you she know, will. Like at the end. All right. Andrew Baker, Chief Medical Examiner for Hennepin, Dakota, and Scott County. There you go. So, yeah, he he kind of just laid it all out there and noted that as of yesterday, there were 1,197 deaths in Minnesota related to COVID, 955 in long-term care, all the things that we know, um, and that a third of those deaths are occurring in those three counties. Yeah, that he that he sees, <clears throat> and of course, the median age, well above my age, Dr. Bell, at, a, at an astounding 84. So the median age is quite old. Um, and obviously, they're not involved in a lot of these because there's no reason for them to do autopsies or follow up on most of the COVID patients. Right. And, you know, he did point that out as that they they have very, you know, per jurisdiction, yada, yada rules. They have things that they, times that they don't do autopsies, you know, if it was a um, in a long-term care, if it's a hospice, if it's a nursing home, which I guess is long-term care, um, inpatient sometimes. So it's there's certain things that they don't typically do um, yeah. autopsies on. He did lay out, and I thought this was super helpful, that MDH had first released the model for social distancing and the projected numbers for Minnesota. First laid that out on April 10th with the projection not going to go through all of that, but then they kind of came back on um, May 13th with updated models. And actually, the updated models were actually somewhat worse, uh, putting that this peak was going to be sooner than projected, um, showing a little bit better ICU capacity and mortality. But according to that most recent model for Minnesota, they had still projected that we'd hit a peak where there's 100 people dying a day. Yeah, and... The interesting thing is that if you look at where our numbers are going, we've not seen that increase. And so at least at this point, we're not starting to follow that that big bump up. So I think a lot of people are asking, are we actually going to have that surge in late June or not? You know, only 11 deaths yesterday from COVID. Oh, I think Today it was end of July was the peak. Well, July sometime, yeah. Um, and today, again, 20. So, you know, they're projecting that there might be, you know, 70 deaths a day right now if we were already on that curve and we're far below that. Now, of course, what's going to happen because of all the protesting, what's going to happen because we're opening things up remains to be seen. 
He then went through a normal day in his jurisdiction and an average day in Minnesota. There's about 40 deaths per day within that jurisdiction. About 123 people die a day in Minnesota. And so right now at 20 deaths a day, just COVID-related, I mean, this still is a bump in time. And so it's still really hard to lay this all out. And I think... Um, I think he did a really good job of trying to explain that and put it into perspective. Well, and I think one of the interesting things is there's been a lot of this stuff about are we having more deaths because people don't go to the hospital or the doctor. And, well, in May, they had the busiest. May ever. Ever. The most people that ever died. Uh, And there's some assumption some of that is because of lack of seeking out care. Yeah, he said whether it's, you know, the deaths of despair, so your suicide, your homicide, your um, drug overdoses, your other health causes. But he said February, March, April, and May have been the busiest months in the last February, March, April, and May for the last five years. So these are still busy months, even though we're not necessarily on that projected curve. Yeah, it's on a on kind of a more personal note. They were talking about what they were doing in their office, obviously with the bodies that they're getting that chance of getting exposed is high, but they've been using pappers by all the morgue attendants transporting and all the physicians and techs. So they've yet to have a case of anybody, their staff members getting sick. So I think they've been really uh, social distancing at work. They've been very careful and uh, it's been successful. Mm-hmm. We did, there was a question that had been asked about is every single body that's coming through his morgue getting tested uh, are coming through the medical examiner's office getting tested for COVID. And unless they get the story or unless they get specifically asked to test, they're not, unless they find like inadvertent or, you know, just accidentally find things that look like ARDS, ARDS, pneumonia, PE, um, yeah, and I think then he said, they'll swab. Yeah, I think he said there'd been like nine or 10 cases where they kind of stumbled across. That makes it doesn't sound like. They're not stumbling across anything when you're doing an autopsy. When when they've just accidentally run onto something that they didn't expect right. and uh, then suggesting COVID. So uh, it has occurred, but he says, you know, really not that common. Then there was a question about, you know, how do you certify all these things as COVID deaths? And he did point out that medical examiners only certify about a sixth of the deaths in the U.S. The rest is primary care providers, um, hospital providers. And so... It's that whole, he's giving us just this very specific group. Um, and, and then he kind of like was pointed out um, on last Thursday from Dr. Critchlow, the whole, we're having two epidemics, pandemics going on now. We have the syndemic. the syndemic overlap of the pandemic from obviously COVID and the epidemic of the opioid overdose deaths. The beauty, if there is any beauty of this at all, is that... He's also going to come on our Echo for Addiction and talk a little bit about his experience uh, with the overdose deaths, uh, which uh, we're looking forward to as well. I believe that's in July 8th. July 8th. Um, So he talked about actually about 20 drug fatalities a month in their office. Every drug fatality is considered a medical examiner case, Mm -hmm. so they do all of those. Yeah, so... I don't know. I just, he was a good speaker too. And I think people just found his perspective um, very interesting. What I found was interesting was that a couple of weeks ago, we had another medical examiner on and how different their talks were. I just thought that was super cool that, you know, just their 
specific personal um, views were just very from different angles. So anyway, we then switched over to Kathy Como Sabetti, who is an MDH epidemiology survey supervisor. Excuse me. Yeah. So she um, she's actually a shirt tail relative. I didn't, and you said that was no. Yeah, I didn't think so, but it turns out she married my brother-in-law's cousin. That's pretty shirt tail. That's pretty small town. That's it's a small world. So she talked a little bit. She kind of went back a little bit and how, talked about how MDH got involved at the beginning, and how they were seeing initially a lot of the cases. You know, came from travel, Asia, China, Europe. But interestingly, the early cases of healthcare workers were actually from travel. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, the early ones were not from exposure as much as at work as it was travel. Well, and she also pointed out that a lot of the numbers, when you look at the charts, were healthcare workers, yes, from travel, but also because at the time, especially early on, we didn't have any tests. And so the people who got to get tested were healthcare workers. And so they were the ones who had more access to the tests. So, yeah. um, And of course, we've had a lot of people think, Oh, I think I had COVID back in February. And all, it's probably not all that likely. Uh, it's hard to know. You know, it turns out in Washington State, their first case was probably about a month before uh, they figure. Uh, but March 6th was our first uh, case that was in Minnesota, I believe. Yeah, 70 It says U.S., but I think uh, that note is wrong. Correct, yes. And that was a person on a cruise ship. But then she went into some of these non-pharmaceutical interventions and really the whole goal of social distancing, the whole um, stay-at-home orders and the quarantining and isolation and how that isn't necessarily to obviously completely stop this pandemic and to shut it all down as much as we'd all like it to. It's it's really just to s- slow that spread to kind of obviously let the hospitals and ICUs get ready yeah. and not be overwhelmed. So then she talked a little about her case interviews and uh, how a lot of times they're they're just trying to get that basic demographic uh, information, you know, potential exposures, high risk settings, and really trying to identify any contact to these people that are in the last couple of days prior to symptoms. Obviously, that's when people are most uh, infectious. So, and uh, I think we should also be measuring how close we get to everybody because they're looking at finding anybody that was within six feet for 15 minutes. So whenever you run into somebody and you're talking to them, push your stopwatch. (laughs) When you hit 14 minutes, bail, because 15 minutes is where you're going to have to talk to MDH. That's that's very true. And then she talked a lot about these, who should be quarantined, self-quarantined, and all these different case definitions. And it's two days prior to your symptom onset, if you had contact with people within this time and distance window, up to 10 days after the onset without a fever for three of those days. It's just it's just very complicated. Um, obviously just made even more complicated by the fact that a lot of times you're already out of your window when the MDH finally gets a hold of you. Yeah. but And that's happened. A lot. So I did find it interesting, though, that the case identification, there is this electronic lab reporting because we have asked even in our clinic and stuff, like, how does MDH get notified? So apparently there is this huge lab database thing that when a lab gets reported electronically, it eventually makes its way back to them. Although it sounded a lot like the game of telephone. It's ELR, electronic lab reporting. But did it not sound like telephone? You know, the game where 
I tell you something in your ear and then you pass it to the next person, you pass it to the next person, and then it doesn't actually get to the last person the same way it started. By the time it gets to them, it's like a nine-year-old dog. Right, but I mean, that's kind of what she said is that every lab reporting doesn't always have to have the same things reported, and so they can lose a lot, which is why it's not as fail-safe of a system as you'd hope it would be. Yeah, and so really... uh, they're just doing a lot of tracking, you know, infectious period. Uh, they're trying to track for these asymptomatic cases, you know, trying to get, you know, timely reporting. Uh, and, of course, part of this problem is, of course, the turnaround of these swabs. And, you know, we've seen it at our clinic where most of them are coming back in two days. I just had one that was three. And uh, by the time then they get around to the contact tracing, sometimes it's a little, a little slow when you're out here. It's a little bit different than if you're at the Mayo Clinic and you get it back maybe the same day. Right. I mean, unfortunately, not every place rural Minnesota has those capabilities. And, you know, she did point out some of the difficulties. And when you really think about it in her perspective, it was interesting. I mean, how do you tell a family who lives in a one-bedroom apartment, you all need to quarantine from each other? That's difficult, of course. Yeah, I'd uh, imagine, too, that if you were getting, you know, 400 cases a day and you're trying to track all of them, you know, it's not like you're, you know, how do you have enough staff to, to track this all day? And so it is. It's a, it's a huge job. So I think, you know, you've got 1,000 to 2,000 calls to make from that. So big, big trouble. She talked a little bit about who is doing it, some of the med students, insurance staff, some volunteers. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, then you think, yeah, the translators, and you have some, you know, people who don't even want to answer their phones. And I guess something in Washington State where some of the contract tracers were getting – you know, people threatening them, and it just... There's some small towns in Minnesota that speak English but still might need a translator. I'm just saying. <laughs> Never mind. But, yeah, well, I'm, from, I'm from up north, so... I think the key is that a lot of people, especially now, and this would be something as a provider, if you're concerned your patient has COVID, just tell them, okay, here's what my concerns are. This is what you should do, quarantine away from people. And then anybody you may have been around in the last, you know, five days, week, whatever, advise them that- Give them a call. Give them a call and say, hey, I might have COVID and they're telling me to, you know, to quarantine. So just be extra cautious or maybe you should quarantine. Just to kind of limit that spread. Yeah. I that think darn are not. Yeah, the are not. And- uh I think people have been pretty good at that. I think mm-hmm. I think in our clinic, I think for the most part, people say, anybody been around, tell them to lay low. So uh, she did get a few questions, and I think the biggest, the biggest uh, thing that, that we wanted her to comment on was the World Health Organization's faux foie. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say that. Faux pas. Faux pas. Did faux. I say that backwards? You did. It's faux I pas. I'm verbally dyslexic. You said pa foul. Um, uh, yeah. Something like that. It's faux pas. I was reading it in my head, and it was like it was on a mirror. It's backwards. Anyway. So, so anyway, they came out and said, uh, yo, there's no... Uh, Do you know where it came from, though? It wasn't in an official... No, because I want you to know this. It was not in an official, like, the WHO yesterday said, there's no such thing as asymptomatic things. Here it's everybody signing it. No, it was one of the providers, doctors that work for the WHO, was in some type of an interview or a panel or something, and she made the comment. So now all of a sudden they took that to mean this is like the Bible for WHO. So the recantation, that's a word, the retraction today came back saying that 
her statement was misinterpreted. Interesting. So it wasn't necessarily a, here's what the who says and here's the who are you is backwards. Mm. Mm. I'm going to use that one the next time I say something stupid, which, I mean, it's it's usually every I'm couple times sure a day. I'm pretty sure you do say that all like, the time. like, hey, I'm retracting that. That was kind of taken Mis- out of context. <laughs> I, so, yeah, so basically they didn't say that is what, she, what they said. Uh, it was taken... Uh, a little too uh, literally. Know, based on the statement I heard. Yeah. So basically, they're saying this whole, this whole thing that. Um, but when you look at science, science shows there's asymptomatic spread. Let's just go down to science yeah. and studies. Yeah. It. The, I'm not even going to say anything else. It's no. almost like saying hydroxychloroquine again, which we're not saying. Oh, you just did. You know, I my favorite part of her talk was. The one statement she said, we've never been so prepared for a crisis to figure out you're not prepared. And, you know, I think that's so true of MDH. They had all this stuff right away that they were just so prepared for, but then it was like, oh, I don't know if we prepared wrong. We didn't prepare enough. We prepared for one thing and it was another. I just... I don't think you could have predicted what this was going to do. This is so crazy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you can prepare all day, but sometimes you just don't know what's going to come at you. And I think... This particular virus was a perfect example of. I just wish someone would finally just say they can start school this fall. Yep. So, yeah, so your kids can get out of your house. So, Joe Helley came out from the Schick. The Schick. um, And from our state uh, group that's helping manage some of the the problems associated with this pandemic. And there was a red on the map, though. Yeah, there was a one red spot on the map. um, and, And really. For the most part, our state is perfect, uh, has plenty of room in the ICUs. Uh, there's no big issues. We're, we have a fair amount of PPEs, but we're a little short on some of the gowns, and that may be somewhat because of all of the elective uh, things going on now. I think, yes, and I think that the one interesting thing was, you know, Mondays is the lowest test day of the week for whatever reason. and But they were testing on average 16,000 tests a day, so that's that's finally getting up there. Um, but he did point out that the red spot on the map did represent med surge, but did not represent, the, it was only COVID. representing, right, it wasn't just COVID. Um, there is a state warehouse for PPE if your area gets, like, strained, but you're not allowed to call them if it's for an elective procedure. Yeah, if you're desperate otherwise, you can get hold of Katie Stangle at catholichealth.net and She'll help you get connected to Joe if you think you need PPE. I was like, where are we going with this? Well, that's what he said. You know, I know, just but... People can give me a call. I just was yeah, a Didn't shocked. know where I was headed. Yeah, no. just, just... I'll give Katie's home phone in just a moment. Yeah, I mean, that's all you know. How do you do this? I don't remember how to tie my shoes. So... Katie? <laughs> so what's coming up this next week on Thursday? Oh, it's already Thursday. So Dr... Dr... Um, Nakvi, excuse me, um, who is a an intensivist from the Twin Cities, working primarily at Bethesda, will be talking about what she titles ICU survivorship. But basically, what do you do with a patient who survives COVID, gets off the ventilator, goes home? How do you do that hospital follow-up? Yeah, and what kind of things are we looking at and checking and following? So I think that will be very interesting. And I think we're having something else that day is, uh, do we have a pharmacy update? I don't know, but we probably can bully Chris into it. But we will also have Dr. Critchlow giving her words of wisdom for the weekend. Perfect. All With right. that? I think otherwise we're done. Uh, I think our opioid slash addiction echo next Wednesday is Jennifer. 
And she's talking about buprenorphine for pain. Not tomorrow, but one week from tomorrow. Tomorrow, no echo. Tomorrow, no echo. I was so confused there for a second. She was um, looking at me like, you don't know where I was, you're going. I thought you were speaking about what is getting auto-released on the Addiction Connection today. On the Addiction Connection was opioids and hair, or excuse me, heroin, opioids, and country music. Next week is Dr. Rush, the father of modern psychiatry. That is a super funny, interesting. Historical. Historical discussion. And it's, I don't know. And I'm not a huge history buff because there's just too much to know. And He but, was the first physician to ever basically come out and say i think the over alcohol use disorder is a disease disease uh, but he had a dark side so we'll just leave it at that so Alrighty. thanks so much for listening and here is battle eggs